This week, we're jumping into work. Work. Admittedly, it's, a, it's another kind of selfish topic for me. It's one that I love to, work, uh, love to talk about. I really do. I love the theology of work. It's radically transformed my Monday mornings. It's radically transformed my Wednesday afternoons after the 2.30 slump. It's radically transformed my Saturdays. It's radically transformed my perspective, my purpose, my drive, my creativity, my skill, because it's being refined by things of heaven, not by the things of the earth. And it reflects him, not my dad's work ethic, my boss's work ethic. I don't have to hold a standard to man. I don't have to be the standard of work, thank goodness. I get to worship the God who created work. And so we're taking a look at on earth as it is in heaven. We don't worship work. We worship the God who created work. And I would say this. I'm actually going to read just two two pages from a book that I want to recommend you read. Um, And if you don't like the book, I will buy it from you. Okay, true story. I'll buy it from now. We'll, we'll negotiate rates, but I'll, I will buy. I will give you money for the book because I might go flip it on Amazon or something like that. We'll figure it out. All right, but I would not mind having five, six more of these in my garage if you truly believe you got nothing from this book. Okay, um, but we generally come to the concept of work with one of one of two liabilities. One is that we esteem it too highly, and one is that we esteem it too low. Now, if, you, if those are the only two buckets, if this is a purely binary situation where you've got to be in one of those two, you're like, no, I straddle it. I've got this perfect heavenly understanding of both. You know. Okay, great, terrific. You don't need the sermon. You can take a nap. But like, let's say, let's say it had to be that you put too much emphasis on work or you didn't put much emphasis on work. Which one are you in? And by the way, it doesn't mean that one's better. I'm in too much. I drive a ton of identity, though there is some identity. I drive a ton of my identity. I drive most of my Instagram stories from work, most of my Facebook. For the older folks, it's just a way of seeing what I do all day on your phone, okay? It's kind of creepy. Some people follow me. They can just, like, follow me around all day as I Instagram my Starbucks walk and stuff like that. But it's, they, you get to peer into my life, and I like to show that I get up early. I stay up late. I usually end my work days 11, 15, you know. I'm a business guy. I'm an entrepreneurial guy, father, coach, all that sort of stuff. You know it's soccer season. I'm wearing sambas for crying out loud, okay? Just bought them, trying to break them in, okay? But long story short, I, I, I like this bucket. I tend to elevate. I try to take a good thing a lot of times and make it a God thing. And I, and I start to elevate work above its place. Some of you are in that bucket with me. Some of you don't. You're like, whatever. Like Jesus said, it's finished. Just gotta do my job. He's coming back. It's gonna be awesome. He's gonna... Kill all his enemies. We're going to be in heaven. So it's like, eh, not going to have his job in heaven or something. Which one are you in? A- apart from my terrible facial expressions. Like, which one are you in? Right? Put yourself there. If it's truly binary, we generally come with one of those two unhealthy approaches. We also sometimes come with a secular, what's known as a sacred-secular divide. I would say that I encounter this a lot is that in, in, in ministry as well as in the workplace when I come across Christians, or non-Christians, that there's this sacred secular divide, that, that there is sacred work and then there is secular work. And most of us are like, well, I don't work at the church. By the way, I don't either. If you don't know me, I'm not on staff, volunteer pastor. Don't t- I, I don't get paid by the church, don't want to get paid by the church. Okay, so I, I'm with you on the quote secular job, and but I'm telling you that there's no divide. There's not a, well, you know, Brett works at church, so he's doing God's work. I'm an accountant, so I'm just making money for the man until Jesus comes back. 
right? There's not this divide. From Christian's perspective, we can't have that wall. There can't be a sacred, secular, divine. Martin Luther was huge on vocation, huge on vocation. And, and he said that that's, that's, it's the cause of just Christians disengaging and not being salt and light and not having influence on their culture. So it's like, well, church is church and Monday through Friday is Monday through Friday and my family is this. And even in my workplace, I do consulting. Um, I was in Nashville for a bunch of meetings with, some, with a company and we were talking about the fact that I don't anymore and it was cool because the company said, we don't either. We don't talk about work-life balance anymore. Because that assumes that when, when, when one gives, one goes up. When one goes down, the other one gives. It assumes this, that there's a fulcrum and it's life or it's work. Talk about work-life integration. And I love that. Like 3.30 of Carissa's like, hey, one of the kids just came down sick. I just walk out the door. Like, see you guys. I'm at a great place. I'm not hourly. I get that. But they know that I'm, I'm integrated, right? With our phones, we're just working. We're, we're integrated. And, and, and in kind of like a new modern way, that's a lot of what, what Luther was talking about. There's not this sacred secular divide where there's, there's God's work and then there's just like normal secular work. It's not. If you're a Christian, you're always doing God's work. Now there is a sin divide. There is work that could be inherently sinful. I've said this before. You can't do, it's crass. It's true. You can't do Christian porn. You can't do it. Well, you know, we're just going to do it in a Christian way. You can't. It's the sin divide. That's what divides work. There is sinful work, but there is not sacred, secular work. Does that make sense? So we have to tear some of that down so we can approach this with a new perspective that reflects God's perspective on what he created and calls us into. And it says this in Colossians 3.23. Some of you knew I would go there. This is probably arguably my favorite book, Colossians. It says, and whatever you do, do it heartily. Just be good at it. Be aggressive with it. Go on the attack, like crush Monday mornings. Oh, Mondays are the worst. Do it heartily. But here's the difference. As to the Lord and not to men. There's your drive. Remember during marriage, we said that the wife was to submit to the husband. And what did the Bible say right after that? As to the Lord, right? Thank goodness. Thank goodness your boss should not be the driving factor of your motivation and work. He may be a great boss. I've got a terrific CEO that I work with. Christian, serves at Malibu Presbyterian, five kids, married the same woman his whole life. Amazing, he's from Minnesota. My wife's like, oh no, it's you in 30 years, right? Serial entrepreneur, okay? Great. Great CEO, amazing, motivates the daylights out of me. But ultimately and primarily, I'm working as to the Lord and not to men. And the cool thing is, is that so is my CEO. You start to marry that with work, with employee and employer. It's a powerful combination. So whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, not to men. Now, I want to read just a couple pages, two pages from this book um, that I've recommended before. Rob says, totally cool, you can recommend it. It's by a guy by the name of Timothy Keller. He's a pastor um, out in Manhattan. I got stuck in that snowstorm in New York uh, two years ago. I flew out there for business. I got stuck. I was there like six days, supposed to be like a two-day trip, and I got stuck in one of those nor'easters, and I just woke up. I was like, oh, I'm going to walk to Keller's church, and luckily he was there teaching live, and so I got to see him live, Um, but he's right in the the heart of work, right? Manhattan, like right in Manhattan. The cool thing is he co-wrote it with Catherine Alsdorf, who heads up his Center for... Um, Center for Faith and Work out of their church, but she's former CEO, tech entrepreneur, that sort of stuff. And so he does a lot of work with business people, power hungry folk in the city, trying to kind of grapple with faith, but business. And he wrote this book and it's called Every Good Endeavor. 
You can come up afterwards, take a photo of it. You can write it down right now. Subtitle is connecting your work to God's work. This is work. This isn't, hey, why God loves business. Because you're like, oh, I don't do business. I've got that book on my shelf too. I'm talking about work, vocation. And let me um, read to you to set up the sermon. It says, Robert Bella's landmark book, Habits of the Heart, helped many people name the thing that was and still is eating away at the cohesiveness of our culture. Quote, expressive individualism. Elsewhere, Bella argued that Americans had created a culture that elevated individual choice and expression to such a level that there was no longer any shared life. Starting to sound familiar? No shared life. No commanding truths or values that tied us together. It was simply about us. It's, it's the Imago Dei gone wrong. It's a problem, the Imago Dei. He says, as Bella wrote, quote, we are moving to an ever greater validation of the sacredness of the individual person, but our capacity to imagine a social fabric that would hold individuals together is vanishing. So the rise of the individual, but the loss of the connective tissue that keeps us together, right? It's like saying my arm is becoming important, but it doesn't care if it's attached to my elbow or my wrist anymore. It doesn't care that it's a part of this body. It wants to be its own thing and that won't get it very far. The sacredness of the individual is not balanced by any sense of the whole or concern for the common good. But near the end of habits, the author proposes one measure that would go a long way toward reweaving the unraveling culture. It says this, there's an excerpt from that book. To make a real difference, there would have to be a reappropriation of the idea of vocation or calling a return in a new way to the idea of work as contribution to the good of all and not merely as a means to serve one's own advancement. Even in a business, we tend to be very vertical, don't we? What's the step I need to make to get the paycheck that I want to have the benefits that my family needs so that I can move up and move on? It's, it's, It's rarely horizontal. It's very often vertical, myself included. And then Keller continues, he says, that is a remarkable statement. If Bella is right, one of the hopes for our unraveling society is the recovery of the idea that all human work is not merely a job, but a calling. The Latin word vocare, to call, is the root of our common word vocation. Today, the word often means simply a job, but that was not the original sense. A job is a vocation only if someone else calls you to do it. A job is a vocation only if someone else calls you to do it and you do it for them rather than yourself. And so our work can be a calling only if it is the reimagined as only if it is reimagined as a mission of service to do something beyond merely our own interests. As we shall see, thinking of work mainly as a means of self-fulfillment and self-realization slowly crushes our person and, as Bella and many others have pointed out, undermines society itself. But if we are to reappropriate an older idea, we must look at the idea's origin. And then he continues... I'm not pulling the sermon from this. You're going to get totally different and even better information in this book. But he says, we need to look back at the idea's 
origin. There's a reason we're in Genesis 1 is because that's when God created work. This was not the result of sin. You don't have to go to work tomorrow because of sin. You're called to go to work tomorrow because of the gospel. And so Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created. Now, why did he not simply make everything at once just exist? He's God. Anyone doubt that he could do that? Anyone doubt that the Bible could have started in the beginning, God made everything? Chapter two. Or he just said, in the beginning, God made sure everything existed. But what does it say? It says that he created. See, work begins with God. I've said this before. He's like a good coach. He models it before he calls you to it. He says, hey, go do that because you're a peon. He says, I'll show you and then I'll call you to follow my footsteps. I had a great soccer coach in high school. I told you about this before. Did everything that he asked of us with us. Hill sprints uphill with a player on his back. I was co-captain. He's like, Leslie, get on. He would run those things. 10 mile death runs. What'd he do? He would lead them, right? Ministered to me like crazy. Said, I'll never, he was, he was, he was so adamant on never asking us to do anything that he wouldn't do himself. And he was clearly a lot older than us at the time, right? Still is. It hasn't changed. Okay. Omar Salas is still older than me. And when he coached, he said, I won't ask you to do anything that I can't do. It's a good coach. It's a good God that says, look, I'm not going to be, look, I created you. You have to work. God's like, before I create you, I'll show you work. And it says, in the beginning, God created. Now I want to show you something as we go through this. And this is where I get to do some pretty slides. Anyone excited for pretty slides? Do this, clap like this. Just do like a weird, awkward clap. All right, so I don't do this often, but I I felt appropriate today to go get some radically cool photos that I think to to display some of this. But what I want to show you first and foremost is this concept of organization and diligence and planning. See, some of you haven't attributed those to God. You're like, he's God, he's doing whatever he wants, whatever he wants. But, but look what he does in the whole chapter. He's organized. Notice that he didn't create the fish before he created the sea. Anyone thought about that? So you need to let this minister to you in your work. I don't really plan. We just get to the, let's just get, God planned. God had an outline. He clearly understood that fish would come after the water, right? He didn't create cattle before grass. You notice that? Cattle show up, it's just nothing but dry land. God was clearly organized. He was clearly diligent. He was clearly planning. He clearly executed on a plan that he had purposed beforehand. At work, we don't reflect God when we run around chaotically trying to get tasks done. We don't. I'm sorry. It's not the God of the Bible as this whole chapter reveals. God doesn't care if I plan my tasks. God plans his tasks. You should care if you're reflecting a God that plans his tasks. He plans, then he executes. He's diligently and skillfully and craftily putting things together. He says, in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Then God saw the light and said, and it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Out here, we didn't really get a a glimpse of it. The the eclipse was like a complete letdown at best, right? How many of you did that? I was in Calabasas. I was like walking to Starbucks and why are people, oh, is that today? Like, oh, was that it? 
But I got friends like in Nashville. I heard Oregon was off the charts. I have a friend that literally was like, oh, we're sitting on the deck, bright. She's like, oh my gosh, completely dark. And then she's like, oh, bright again. Like light, dark, light, like absolute craziness. We sort of got like, you know, a couple burnt retinas. or like people looking through trash bags and cereal boxes and just weird nonsense. Like trying to get, we didn't really get a glimpse, but like that dramatic light to dark, right? Just reveals this, this, this purpose that God had. He could have just said, may make it light all the time. Say, just make it dark at all the time. But he didn't. He was instituting seasons and, and cyclic nature. He called the light day and the darkness. He called night so that even in the morning was on the first day. Verse six, and then God said, let the firmament, that's basically the heavens in the midst of the water and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament and the water which were above the firmament. And so it was. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were on the second day. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens. Now he's coming down to earth. He went macro. Now he comes smaller. He says, then let the waters under the earth be gathered together in one place and let dry land appear. Whole earth could have just been land. The whole earth could have just been water. This is where I hope these are working. Is this thing on? It will be when I press the button. It says on. He could have made the earth so we talked about organized, right? We talked about organized. What I want to talk about is God's now creativity. Some of you haven't given him that attribute. Some of you haven't properly reflected a God who is creative in your work. And don't give me the whole, well, I'm not an artist. I'm not a photographer. I'm talking about spreadsheets and email and organization and task management. I'm talking about presentation, information. I'm talking about being creative and problem solving and management issues, all this sort of stuff. He's organized and diligent and skilled as he goes through. He didn't create the fish before he gave him the water. Water then fish. Makes sense, right? This isn't, this isn't like dumbifying God, right? This is elevating his skill and expertise so that we would then be encouraged in that skill and expertise and organization. But I want to show you too that God is creative. He could have made this whole thing wicked boring, crazy boring. Have you thought about this? He says, okay, I'm going to make the earth and I'm going to have water and tell you what, we're going to have land and water. Instead of just making land, he gets creative. He creates land. Oh, what do I got to do? Oh, and see. Oh, I got three for each of these concepts. Is that not more creative than just land? Is that not more creative than just sea? Another one, land and sea. He's like, that's way more creative. And third, that's just up at Big Sur. You can drive there quick. It's up at Big Sur, by the way. Just get on the one, roll all the way up. Rent a, rent a convertible that day or something. Go up there. Watch where God marries land and sea. He's creative. What's that? Yeah, they got tore up with the fires and stuff. I was supposed to actually perform a wedding on one of these cliffs and it got uh, repurposed because they couldn't go. So. so he says, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. Verse 10, and then God called the dry land earth and called the gathering of the waters. He called the seas and God said that it was, and God saw that it was good. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields a seed, and he could have just made one type of plant. You haven't thought about this, 
right? He could have just made one thing. I was in a meeting today, right before I came. It was like a two-hour meeting with a company that's got this superfood meal replacement. Like we have like your whole meal right here and just like one scoop. I'm like, nah, it's kind of boring. Vegan, organic, the whole bit. Like we're probably going to take it into Costco. It's probably going to be a crazy success, but kind of boring, right? You're like, oh, cool. Look at my meal. He could have done that with the plants. Could he not? He's God. He could have made the whole thing work with one type of plant. Instead, he got creative. That's not right. Oh, the land. Check this out. He could have made all the land the same. Some of you are like, get to the flowers. Okay. He could have made all the land the same. Couldn't he? He didn't. He made land drastically different in different places. You can't drive through any part of this world and not see the painting that God painted. Even way up. I know that, that terrifies some of you SoCal people, right? That's a beautiful thing. He could have made one type of plant. Tell me I got this right. Instead, he got creative. Only, oh, just three. Could we, we could spend four hours. Just Google images flower, right? And just scroll, infinite scrolling. Go to Pinterest, do pretty flowers and just scroll, okay? He could have made one plant. He didn't, he got creative. Not a bird, as a plant. Sunflower. Look at that. You didn't create that. Every time you see that, you don't see your handiwork, right? You're like, I planted the seed. Oh yeah, and you created that seed? No, okay. And so he says, the grass and the herb that yields seed and the fruit that it yields. He could have just made one fruit, could he not? They're like, we're gonna do this whole chapter? Yep, right? I've got three for each one. Could he have not just made one fruit, right? Just here you go. It's the super fruit. It's the one thing you'll need for the rest of the time that I have for you on earth. Instead, he got creative. Pomegranate, who loves pomegranates? This is a fun one. It's like grapefruit. Like, it's like love it or hate it. No one's like, I'm in the between on a pomegranate. Moms hate it because it stains like crazy. Yeah. See, I know that. I'm a dad. He got creative. Not just one kind of fruit. And I'm only giving you three. That yields according to its kind whose seed is in itself and on the earth. And it was so. And then the earth, brought, the earth brought forth grass and the herb that yields seed according to its kind and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is itself according to its kind. And then God saw that it was good. And so the evening and the morning were on the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to the divide the day and the night. Let there be signs for seasons. I could have done seasons. We don't have time for the days and the years and let the lights in the firmament from the heaven give light to the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights. And we're going to go on and on. I'll just get right to my list. And so fruit, and he goes into the sea creatures. He could have made one type of sea creature. Anyone here scuba dive? I do. I'm from Minnesota and I scuba dive. What's wrong with y'all? You've been living here your whole life. You don't surf. You don't scuba dive. You don't go to mammoth snowboarding, right? If you have, you should, you want to see Jesus' creativity, you go in underwater. He creates some weird looking things. Some weird looking things. What is this? That's out of place. Oh, the oceans. Different oceans, different colors. How many have been to the South Pacific? Hawaii, Fiji, Tahiti? Ever notice it's different than like Maryland? Indian Ocean, Red Sea, right? Oceans are completely different, are they not? Could have just made one type. The sea creatures. Tell me we want to serve a creative God. You think about that next time you're doing a spreadsheet, please. Okay? So I want you to think about, like, dang, God took time on that one. There's some weird looking things underwater. Look at that guy. 
I don't know which way he's looking. Another one, just koi too. Even koi are just, just regular fish. Could have just made one. How about birds? He could have just made one bird. Spend a little time painting that guy. These weird things. Tell me what they need those crowns for. I don't know. Jesus is like, we'll put it on there. See if they can figure it out. <laughs> Look at this one. Look at that, homie. That's a, that's a hawk right there. That's a bird. I think birds are weird, but I would, I would, ho- I would totally hang out with a hawk. <laughs> it says it creates cattle. We're going to do cattle? Yep. We're going to do cattle. Check out this one. Look at that. Anyone know what that is? Yeah, it could. I, I, uh, I shouldn't have asked that question because I just forgot. <laughs> Not even cattle. Even cattle don't look the same. That guy. Look at these. Just create cattle. Creeping things. I'm, I'm not a fan of snakes. Who likes snakes? Who are the weird people? Raise your hands. Right? Look, I'm not putting you down, but there's a reason Satan came as a snake. All right? These things are freaky. But all the creeping things, as he creates all the creepy things, he could have just made one. He didn't. And by the way, by the way, Bible says that it was after he was struck down that he slithered on his belly. So very well, the first snake could have bounced in on his tail like Tigger. Have you ever thought about that timeline? Bible doesn't say he slithered out here. He slithered in on his belly. It says he was struck down and slithered out on his belly. So we don't know how Satan got in there as a snake, but there's a chance that they bounced in. There's this guy's another creeping thing. There's this guy's another creeping thing. And look, I could go on and on and on. And then he created humans. Now, I don't have a slide for that. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to look around. Look around. Seriously, don't be like, oh, I don't come to, I don't go to church to do dumb exercises. Look around. Not a single one of you looks like another single one of you. Even twins are a little different, right? Especially in person out, right? Look at this. Look at this eclectic bunch. He could have made us all look the exact same, but he made male and female. And then no two are alike. So one time I will call you. You're like a you're like a glorious little snowflake. You're an individual. Okay? Creativity. Now I've got this. It's not just an artistic creativity. So we're like, I don't do photos, I don't do that, I work in an office, I'm in a cube. Right? I'm at home with my kids. It's about being creative with problem solving. It's about being creative with efficiencies. It's about being creative with the rearing of children or cost savings or managing tasks or managing people, presenting information or being creative in areas that cause you to become more valuable to the organization or business or family to which God has called you to serve. God was organized as he executed creation. He was creative as he executed creation. And he calls us in the establishment of work that wherever you are, wherever you are called, that you would be diligent and skilled and creative. When we work with competence and diligence and organization and skill and creativity, we reflect the God who worked and works with competence and diligence and organization and skill and creativity. And then chapter two, says this, Genesis 2, thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. Now check it out. He's God. What does he do? Does God get tired? Raise your hand. If you think yes, I love this trick question because everyone gets, who thinks God gets tired? Uh, Which one? Right? I'll give you a little insight as to how I would answer it. 
It says, and on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. I would argue that God the Father does not get tired. He is eternal, and yet he rested. Now, when Jesus came as the incarnation, born under the law, he definitely got tired. Homie was serious about his naps, okay? Jesus was serious about his naps, slept in the boat while it was raging storm. He was knocked out, right? Jesus worked and got tired. So Jesus as God, tired, yes. God the Father, no. And so God models before the incarnation. He does what? He rests. He doesn't have to. He didn't have to. This is not because he was tired. This is part of the call in work is to have a day dedicated to rest. I struggle with this. I would do seven days a week, 365 if I could. I could, I would, probably would. And by the way, people hate when I bring this up. The biblical prescription for a work week is how many days? Six. Now I know some of you are grabbing on real tight to your weekend, right? Like, no, the American calendar says weekend. Bible says Sabbath. Six, Sabbath. But I need more, okay? Well, God modeled it for you. Jesus came, worked a six-day Jewish work week. Some of you are like, well, my company's not open on Saturday. Ah, and you last time were telling me you didn't have time to serve the church. Amazing how that works out. So you don't have time, but you do have an extra day apparently because you don't get a weekend anymore unless you're both in the faith of Judaism and Christianity, which doesn't happen. That's why we, America just said, you know what? Just give them both what they want, right? Just give them a Saturday and a Sunday. Whichever their day is, that's we get them both. That's weekend. The Bible says six-day work week. So perhaps some of you are like, well, my business is closed. Cool. What else can you be doing? It can be in the work of family, of discipleship, of, of church, of helping, of service, of community. There's a lot of things you can do. Work's not restricted to your W-2. My business is open Monday through Friday. I've got side businesses that I work on. I coach baseball in the spring, soccer in the fall, right? I've got consulting gigs that I do for people with web. I, I get a lot. And then I have to force myself because then I start to elevate work and then I have to back off. And I tell my wife, said, look, this is going to be our Sabbath. Saturday's our Sabbath. She works on Sundays. And then a lot of times I was preparing for messages on Sunday night, right? So for us, I told Chris, I said, you do whatever we want on Saturday. You tell me. I'm not going to work. I'm not going to answer emails. I'm not going to do consulting. I'm not going to meet with people. I'm not going to do it. So we've set aside Saturday. It doesn't matter if it's a Monday. It doesn't matter if it's Wednesday. If that's the day off, you have to set aside. So we have a six-day work week. We have no weekend in the Bible. There's only a Sabbath. Some of us here tonight don't rest because we worship work. Others rest too much because we worship rest. God calls us into a beautiful tension modeled by him. It's not me. It's not Mark being like, yo, he said we have to work six days. No, God showed us that we work six days in various forms. And then we rest. If you'll skip down to chapter two, verse 15. It says this. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to tend and keep it. Earlier had said that he had created the garden, but there was no one to work it. And so God created man in part out of a response to have an agent on earth, having dominion, showing stewardship as God has dominion and shows stewardship over us, that we would have a plot of land, metaphorically, spiritually, your family, your workplace, your position, your company, 
your marriage, that we would steward and have dominion over these little areas to reflect God doing the same. It says, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Placed in the garden, the man was as the primary, gentlemen and ladies, as the primary work mechanism, men. Could have created them both at the same time, put them at the exact same time, said there was no man and woman to tend the garden. What he said is that there was no man to tend the garden, so he creates the man and he puts him in there. Then he says, it's not good that man should be alone. All women know this. Men struggle with it, right? All women know that men need what? Help, yeah, right? Ladies, you are completely justified. Gentlemen, get off your high horse. You need help. We studied that in the marriage. But you need to know that man was placed in the garden as the primary work mechanism. Eve comes alongside him and is called his helper. Now, legalism will tell women that you can't work, that you shouldn't work. Religious legalism says, no, women can't work. They must stay in the home. They cannot have a job. Liberalism will tell you that women must work, that you're of no value in the home, that in order to have identity and value and worth, you must have a full-time W-2 job. And so sometimes they look down on stay-at-home moms. So where legalism says women can't work and liberalism says women must work, the Bible says women can work, men must work. Hear me again, women, you can work. Titus 2.5 says that you are though to be focused on your home, but you can work. Everyone quotes like, I would be a Proverbs 31 woman. She had a job, by the way. So did many other women in the Bible. She had a job. Now, to be home-focused, your job should not be the ruin of your home. It should be your focus. But thank goodness God had this provision because he knew there would be deadbeat husbands. Imagine if the Bible said, woman shall not ever be employed. Dad dies, dad runs, dad becomes a complete deadbeat. Woman is forced into poverty in order to maintain God's law. Thank goodness God didn't say it. Now, what he did say is that men must work. Really show me. I'm glad you asked. First Timothy 5.8 says, but if any man does not provide for his own, especially those of his household, he has denied the faith, gentlemen, and is worse than an unbeliever. That's harsh. Take it up with God, not me. I'm the messenger. This is not beat over your head. You must work. This is a calling into reflecting heavenly precepts on earth. A lazy man does not reflect a diligent God. A lazy Christian does not reflect a diligent, skillfully crafting and creative God. So women, you can work focused on home. Men, you must work as provider, as primary work mechanism. This has played out in our own life. My wife has a master's degree in teaching. Was a Caneo Valley School public school teacher. We committed to making single income work, even if that meant leaving the state. Like a couple weeks into dating, I was a senior in college, done messing around with the whole dating thing, had a conversation. She's like, what do you want for your career? She goes, I want to be a stay-at-home mom. I said, oh, thank goodness, because I want to be a single income provider. I said, now, but what happens is we can't do it out here. She says, then we get out of here. I'm like, I love you. Let's get married right now. But it's weird because it was only three weeks, right? But I said, yes, 
because she was attaching to life course that we were taking these roles. Now, now what's, what's transpired is that we, we, as soon as we had kids, Carissa actually thought that she had to go back to work. She'll tell you it was, it was weary on her. She was, she, she just couldn't imagine the fact of going back at the time when Ethan was just a couple months old. And I said, look, you're, look, we're, we're sticking to our plan or we're ditching California. Our family's more important than our state. And so we're going to do a single income. If we can't, we'll leave. And God provided and God provided. I, I know there's tough financial situations, but there's also a ton, a ton of evidence that shows that when women work, they can barely offset daycare costs, especially out here. It's crazy what it costs. But the Bible calls to be focused on home, but women, you absolutely can work. Men, you absolutely must work. Now, we're not legalistic. If you're paralyzed or some legal reason, God understands, God knows. But it's that your heart is set on reflecting him, a diligent, hardworking, creative God. And so for us, we started to do single income. We did single income for five years. And this is even farther back in my career. I wasn't making what I am now. We didn't go on vacation for eight years. So that's crazy. You're a bad husband. Okay. I'll steward my family. You steward yours. I know families that have kids in daycare and they get all their vacations. It's not for me to judge. It's for me to call us to what God has called us to. And then the church came to Carissa and said, would you become children's ministry? Like three years ago, right? Brett. And she's like, we don't do daycare and we don't have family in the state. We're both from out of here. And Brett and the church was like, bring your kids to work. Like they got eight rooms to play in. You only got three at your place, <laughs> right? Like they can run. They got more toys. My kids come home like burnt out. Like, oh man, like, glad our house is so small because our day gig is really big and lots of toys, you know? Come like, all cute, dad. You have three, three rooms here. That's great. You know, like thanks for all the toys. Like they just run amok all week over there. It's crazy. And the church is amazing. They let her work from home if she needs to. Let her leave when they need to, right? That's a, a pro-life church. And so luckily we've got our second income back and yet my wife is still focused on, on home. And so it plays out, but I can tell you this, God will provide. But sometimes, and, and out here, I run into this conversation. Look, sometimes it just comes to sacrificing your idolatry of the state, or they believe you have kids. You're going to do single income, but you're not going to change the way that you live. We cut all our cell phone. We haven't had cable since we had Ethan. We stripped everything down. It may, I sold my car. Some of you think I ride a motorcycle all, all the time because I'm a show off. Do you know where or why I ride a motorcycle full time? Because when I bought it seven years ago, it was a month before we had Ethan. We had a car, a car, and a motorcycle. So I have to sell one. I sold my car. It's cheaper to operate my motorcycle. The reason I'm on that every day is because we made a plan that Carissa would be focused on the home and that I would be the primary work. And so we've, we've run amok. I don't want that to burden you. I want it to free you. Gentlemen, there's a calling. Ladies, there's certainly an allowance and a calling too. My wife's going to go back to teaching, by the way. Women can work, must, men must work, but sin broke this shalom. God called Adam and Eve into this design of work and sin fractured it. We see in the curse even in Genesis 3 that the curse placed on both the man and the woman re-emphasized their roles. It re-emphasized who they are at their core by design. It says to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. It's part of the curse. It's, it's that pain in childbearing that there's also a foreshadowing of the gospel that you still have a need to be born again, but it cost pain and suffering to be born again. So even in the curse, there's a, there's a, 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 a gospel projection for man, it says an end to Adam. He says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded, you shall not eat of it. Curse is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. He says, work's gonna be hard. 
the ground will resist you. Your programs will break at work. Your computer will shut down. Your projects will go awry. Business deals will fall through. He says it will be by the sweat of your brow. And so he reinforces that calling. And you fast forward and God shows his work ethic through the Old Testament as he again diligently and skillfully guides his people and then Jesus comes. And as I said, I think last week, Jesus could have showed up as a 30-year-old king. He could have shown up in all the prestige, wearing purple from day one, coming out clean and shiny in his man dress and floating around town. He could have. He's God. He could do whatever he wants. What did he do? He came in through a woman. As we saw last week, he came in through a family with an adopted dad. And what did he do for the first, well, the first 12 years, it says he grew in the things of the Lord, right? People, we, we've got this big blank spot in the Bible. It says that he was about the Lord, which really fills all that time, to be honest, as he was about the things of the Lord. People are like, I wish I knew what God, Jesus did. That's all you need to know about what he did is that he was about the Lord. He was studying and teaching. He was growing and learning. And then at about 12, we know from Jewish culture, he took on an apprenticeship with his dad. And then for 18 years, you don't see him come onto the scene until he's 30 and he starts preaching. What had he done for those 18 years? He worked. He worked. He got up. He brown bagged it with his dad. He sourced materials. They had clients. They went out and they bid. He worked with rock and wood. I've often said, I I imagine, Bible doesn't say, but I imagine at some point he's on his knees working on a porch, breaking rock. The Pharisees and scribes come by and say, ah, oh, to be a poor guy. And it was God. And what was he doing? Sweating. Did he cut himself sometimes? Sure. Was that the blood of God spilt on a rock for a porch? Quite possibly. What did he do for 18 years? He worked. It says he sent his, later in his ministry, he sent his disciples to go get a donkey and they knew him. Why? He, I believe he probably worked on their house. He had built a relationship with him. He'd seen him in synagogue, right? He was good at his job. People said, hey, that's a great porch. Where do you get it? Jesus did it. You should call him. So they text him like, hey, Jesus, can you do my porch too? And he'd bring his dad. He was identified at it. When they first saw him, he said, look, it's the carpenter, right? It's, it's like with bread. He shows up. They're like, look, it's the pastor. Part of his work was part of his identity was how the culture interacted with him. He had penetrated his small town. He had worked for 18 years. People are like, I wish, it, I wish, I, I truly do wish we had a chapter on it, but I just think it wasn't much to write about. He just got up and went to work and we're like, oh, my work's really mundane. Jesus didn't even make the Bible, right? Like he was a contractor. He was blue collar. He worked with his hands. And by working with his hands, I've got here, he didn't work on a church staff. He was a blue collar trade in business with his dad. And he was identified as the carpenter. And by working with his hands, Jesus demonstrated that all honest labor is noble. Jesus honored the work of the shepherds, the farmers, the carpenters, the servants, and the physicians. When Paul commanded believers to work with their hands, Ephesians 4.28, he ennobled manual labor, which society generally scorned. God esteems both mental and physical labor, workplace and home, male and female, father, son, mother, daughter, white collar, blue collar. God esteems work. Why? Because God created work. And because work points to eternity. And so we see that God created work. We see that Jesus was perfect and he worked. And by the way, only two perfect men have ever walked the earth. We talked about both of them, Adam and Jesus, and they both worked. 
Yeah? Both work. Neither one of them was like, I'm a king. I'm good. Yo, God, it's perfect. The garden's awesome. We don't have to do anything, right? Just Netflix. They both worked and they were in a perfect state. And work points us to eternity. Some of you believe that heaven is a place that we go off and we get a cloud and we finally get to rest for eternity. Now there will be rest, but that does not mean it will be void of work. Revelation 22.3 says, his servants will serve him. But we will never grow weary or tired. Isn't that going to be awesome? I'm super pumped, like all hours of the day. Like, I'm not going to be working for myself. I wish I had that energy now. I got a lot. God may take it from me at some point. I got a lot. I want to give it out. But we're just going to be able to work forever. We're going to serve. Why? It's going to be a joy. It's not going to feel like a burden. It's not going to be, we're no longer going to be under the curse. We're going to be in eternity. Work will no longer feel like a burden. The Bible doesn't say exactly what heavenly work will look like, but we know that it will be joyful. And so from creation to consummation, work has been a part of God's design. Working under the curse reminds us of our desire for eternity. Working with joy despite the curse points others to our joy in eternity. That we would reflect on earth as it is in heaven, God's precepts, his design. Even though work is hard at times, that we would continue to skillfully deploy that which God has given us as talents and times and treasures to reflect on earth as it is in heaven. We are called not to worship work, but to worship the God who created work and to then worship God with our work on heaven, on earth. I should get that right. It's a big finale. On earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. God, I just ask that, um, I ask that if anything that we would see you as the source sum of our joy in our work. That we would see you as the source and the sum of our joy in our work, as to you, not as to men. Though there are repercussions for our relationships with men, that we would be primarily and ultimately driven in our work by the God who created work, not so others would see us, so that they would see you through us. And as the Bible says, that they would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And so God, would you do that renewing work in all of us as most of us in, or all of us in some way, shape or form step into our vocation tomorrow morning. Some may be working tonight. Some may have the graveyard shift and are going into that workplace. But would you restore our understanding that work is first and foremost about you it has implications for us, but it is for you, created by you. Colossians 1.16, all things are created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. And so would we see that our work was created, that we've been called to it, not to worship it, but not to belittle it either, that we would be called in this vocation to glorify you in whatever we do. Would we have a radically transformed Thursday tomorrow? I pray this for myself, for my family, for all my friends here that Thursday, that tomorrow morning would be unlike any Thursday morning we've had, not because of what we've done, not because of what I've done. That was clearly a sign from heaven, but that, God, it's about what you have done. And so we thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.